Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner, and joining me in this episode is the journalist and author Porna Bell. Now, I met Porna a couple of months ago at a press screening of Deadpool 2, if you please. Thank you, Terry White. But when she introduced herself, I realised I'd been following her and liking her posts on social media for quite some time. There was that rather brilliant moment where she said, Hi, I'm Porna. And I said, Oh, Porna Bell, I follow you on Twitter. Listeners, I am nothing if not incredibly cool socially. For those of you who don't follow Porna, and I suggest you do, she's an award-winning journalist and author who's written for The Pool, Red Magazine, Stylist, Women's Health, The Huffington Post, and many more. Now, I knew that she had written a book. I knew it was called Chase the Rainbow. But as regular listeners of the show will know, it was, my, it was on my TBR pile. Shame on me. After meeting Porna, I bumped it to the top of the list, and as soon as I'd finished it, I emailed her and asked if she'd like to come on the podcast to discuss it. Thankfully, she said yes. Chase the Rainbow is an incredibly personal account of Porna's relationship with her husband and addresses depression and addiction head-on. As the book's paperback tagline reads, One Man's Journey with Mental Health Told by the Woman, the woman Who Loved Him. It's an incredible piece of work, and I don't just say that because I think anything that has made it from a brain into a cohesive series of words is impressive, but because it's joyful, tragic, painful, and beautiful. I'm loath to say anything more because it's one of those experiences that I'd rather you guys had yourself rather than me sharing mine with you, if that makes sense. In this conversation, we talk about the stigma of mental health and why it's so important to discuss it more openly. We talk about addiction when it's okay to move on, and how she was able to put pen to paper on such an emotional topic. I will, of course, put all the links to Porna's website, social media, and of course the book in the show notes on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and emmaguns.com. If you would like to get in touch with the show, please do email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on social where I'm at Emma Guns. I genuinely adore hearing from you and thank you to everyone who has been in touch recently. I've been getting quite a few messages and it's just been absolutely brilliant and we're having some great conversations. Also, if you haven't already, you might like to join the private Facebook group for the show. The link is in the show notes, but that's where there's a lot of group chat about many things, including episodes and various other topics. Why not join the conversation? But here she is. I'll blather on no more. 
Here she is, the brilliant Pournabel on The Emma Gunn Show. Welcome, Pornabel. You, you say your name, you say it better than anyone. Porna. The, okay, we've just been having this conversation, listeners. <laughs> it's got the most wonderful sort of lilt in the middle that I don't think I can get my, my um, mouth around properly. Um, so it's a very difficult name. Uh, one that I have had lots of problems with because I always have to spell it out. Like whenever I make a reservation, I always have to spell it out. Mm -hmm. And um, if I was to say Porna to you... Would you know how to spell it if you didn't know already how to do that? I would just, I would use one O, not two. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, but then you've got a whole other raft of issues. You, oh, trust me. <laughs> yeah, been through all of that in school, all the variations. Oh no. Okay, right. Let's do this then. Nay, nicknames. Um, what on earth was it at, at school? I, I think you can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, porn is obviously a big one because most people pronounce my name porna. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, poo, uh, because I'm a double O, not a U mm -hmm. or a one O. Um, but poo is actually my nickname that my friends and family have for me. Mm -hmm. And I, d it's, I don't register it anymore. So it's not <laughs> like I'm like, oh my God, they've actually just called me a pile of poo. And my, mu <laughs> my mum's nickname for me is Pooh Bear. So it does kind of get quite yeah, cute. Yeah, yeah. The worst, however, is when um, someone knows me. So like, let's say they read my book mm -hmm. and I refer to myself a couple of times as Pooh. Mm -hmm. And they then take it upon themselves to go, oh, hi, Pooh. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, with nicknames, you have to have not that conversation. Permission giving. That there, there yeah. has to be consent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at consent. But there does. There needs to be. Yeah, there needs to be a conversation. Otherwise, yeah. it just gets very awkward. And it's yes. like you've just shot the gun or moved a bit too quickly. Yes. I remember calling my next door neighbor's daughter by her nickname. Uh, when we went around for like a barbecue years and years ago. And when I went home, my father said, you never use anyone, the nickname that someone else gives to someone unless that person has been. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I can, I mean, as someone whose nickname <laughs> is Pooh, I can definitely vouch for that. Well, I was just saying to Porna earlier that um, I am getting used to people calling me guns <laughs> because it feels a bit weird. I like it, yeah. but also... Caroline Hyron's got me um, an embossed travel wallet. And obviously I don't want to travel with it. It's better than having poo embossed on it, let me tell you. Going through airport security with an embossed wallet. What, saying what's guns, in that? I don't think, why, I don't think so. why is it not in a see-through bag? Here's my, I mean, I love it. It's one of my most cherished possessions. I have it in my handbag at all times, but I do think sometimes someone, next time I go to America, I'll have to leave it out because I don't want them thinking I'm part of the NRA. It's a bit triggering at security, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Literally. Literally. But maybe that was what Caroline intended. <laughs> no, I'm sure not. Anyway, we're here. I'm so delighted to be hanging out with you and chatting. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Honestly, it's amazing. Um, we have so much to talk about today. Um... And we're going to kick off with your book, Chase the Rainbow, which I finished reading this week. And I, I don't want this to sound ridiculous, but I needed, I needed to be still afterwards. Someone said to me that they finished reading it and then they just needed to just put it down somewhere and like go for a walk mm. for a little bit, um, which 
I'm very interested to actually find out more about that because obviously for me, mm. that's not my experience of it. Like, I mean, I had to do some edits around it and so on and then basically didn't read it. I was like, I can't look at you for a few months mm. um, until, you know, it was about to come out. And then periodically I do pick it up and read it, but I am very interested to hear how it affects other people. Mm. So let's, um, in a nutshell, explain to mm. the listeners. Um, it's my top read so far of 2018 without a shadow of a doubt. It's beautifully constructed. It is, it, it, it's very personal. You have a relationship with that book when you're reading it. So would Thank you mind you. just describing for the listeners? Sure. So uh, the book is a memoir meets um, journalism of my life uh, with my husband, Rob. So he passed away um, just over three years ago, actually, which just seems crazy because it does not feel like it's been three years. Um, and... He had uh, depression, so he had chronic chronic depression um, since he was, you know, quite young. Um, and when we were married, I didn't know about this at the time because I am I was very very naive around drug use. But he also was kind of secretly keeping um, a heroin addiction that he was kind of using to self medicate his depression. Mm -hmm. But it also then turned into a rolling addiction, which he was trying to basically manage all of this stuff on his own, and then eventually things just came to a head. Um, and the book um, uh, culminates and then moves past, um, he took his own life in 2015. And um, for me, really the summary of, of that entire book was, um, was to tell people, like so if I told you, you know, in a nutshell, uh, I was married, my husband passed away by suicide. You know, there are lots of assumptions that mm -hmm. we make because of how things like suicide, addiction, mental illness is, um, you know, what our kind of cliff notes around those mm -hmm. things are. And he was like obviously hugely complex and there were, you know, difficult things um, that we had to deal with as a couple, mainly, you know, just him keeping an addiction for me, for for example. But there was like an immense amount of love in our relationship. Mm. And he was an incredible human being. I mean, like one of the most, if not the most intelligent person I had ever come across. Um, hugely like, um, huge contradictions in that, like extremely gentle, you know, uh, avid gardener, but also like a punk rocker. And I was like, I don't want people, or rather I don't want to go through life telling people um, anecdotally about what's happened to my husband or our story um, and for them to kind of have this takeaway around it which mm. isn't actually a reflection of for a lot of people who lose people to suicide and so on so it was kind of in one sense it was a homage to him and mm. like his legacy um, but a big part of that legacy was also if there was someone going through something similar for them to not feel so isolated mm -hmm. and alone in it. Cause like that was a big part of my experience when we were going through this stuff and subsequently after he passed away, which was that I felt very isolated and very alone in what I was feeling and, you know, felt like it wasn't normal, like what I was going through and all of this stuff. So, um, to be able to articulate that and also just to do him and our relationship justice, so when you say it's, you know, a beautiful book, like that means so mm -hmm. much because that really is the portrayal of our relationship. And even though there were some really difficult bits to it, um, it, it was a beautiful relationship that we had. It's very mm. honest. It's very um, confronting. It's very, again, mm. it's very beautifully written. And when I finished it, I put it down and I was sort of shuffling around afterwards, <laughs> sort of like doing a bit of housework, yeah. sort of thinking. 
And then I just said to myself, I believe you. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing mm. to say, but I read it and I thought, I totally imagine that if the circumstances were told from Rob's perspective, mm. it would have been nothing but consistent. I yeah. feel like you were fair to all parties involved. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that was definitely something that I thought about when I was writing it, which mm. was, um, you know, we, our relationship um, was kind of 50-50 in terms of, um, you know, like how much you love each other. So there are some relationships, we all know, like friends, where you can tell that one person <laughs> is like belatedly more into the other person and you're just like, oh, don't hold on so tight. Mm. But like we, <laughs> like, for, like I described this to him actually, where I was like, there's an equilibrium. So it, it doesn't mean that one of us loves each other the more. It was a very equal kind mm. of understanding um, and uh, reciprocity of, of how much we loved each other. So when I was kind of going through it, um, I did try and bear in mind, you know, how would how would he think about this? And mm. would he think it is an accurate representation of our relationship? So that actually was quite a good um, mm. steer and a good guiding point. But at the same time, I didn't want to make it seem like I was like whitewashing some of like the difficult bits mm. um, of our relationship because I just felt that, you know, we did speak about this when he was alive, but there was a lot of like very bad decision-making mm. that Rob um, made and, and just generally, you know, an in, like an inability to not keep making the same mistakes, even though he had been given over and over again the permission to just, to just I, like I just said to him kind of very consistently, it's okay if you kind of mess up or if you relapse or if you do whatever it is, but just tell me. Like mm. the worst thing actually is not telling me, um, but unfortunately he never kind of got to that point. I think he was always just very petrified that if I kind of found out, mm. I would just leave. And, and what, what I think mm. is very interesting is you always knew anyway. Yeah, yeah. Once you knew, yeah, yeah. you always knew. Yeah, like, I mean, I have a letter that he wrote me um, this was uh, very shortly after, I think, his second relapse, where he was like, you know, like, we both know that you know, um, but without treating me like a child, like, he's literally written that, like, without treating me like a child, how are you supposed to move forward with anything? Because I keep denying it. So that's also, that was also immensely frustrating, mm. because it wasn't, it wasn't like I was dealing with someone who was constantly in denial. Like he had a very crystal clear understanding of what a nightmare he could be sometimes, which actually obviously was immensely frustrating for me. Cause I'm mm. like, you understand in, in certain moments, you do understand like what it is like for me, but mm. obviously there's just, it's so complicated and there's all this other stuff swirling around. So complicated. And I think you do mm. all those elements justice. I find it very mm. eye opening. That's well, it was meant to be. If you didn't know anything about that, mm. it was meant to be eye opening, but hopefully eye opening in a good way. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I'm really glad to hear that because it was also just that, like, it's a trickle down effect, right? In that, okay, you may not have someone who is immediately in your life who is going through that kind of stuff, but you might know someone who knows someone. Mm. And actually, being able to like impart that information so that it kind of helps someone else figure out like the mess that they're in. Mm. Um, whereas maybe before you didn't know how that kind of stuff works, like that was actually a really big motivation for writing the book. And I just wondered how you began because 
and listeners know this, I've sat down to write books <laughs> and it never comes. And even if something, you know, even if 5,000 words do make it onto my laptop, I will then read someone else's work and think, no, I should, I should structure it differently or it should be this format. Oh, mm. I'll do it as emails. I'll do it in conversation. And I end up just killing my own creativity. Did it, did it come quite naturally? Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's no... Um, the thing is, being very uh, honest about it, if it had been a struggle, I wouldn't have written mm. it because it would have been a sign that I was either not emotionally or psychologically ready to write it. Mm. But the one, like, godsend, I would say, um, because this really, really helped me with my grief, especially in the first year, which was just, like, a phenomenally awful year when I look back on it, was that writing was very easy. And also, it just, it was one of the very few things that kind of gave me any sense of comfort because it meant that... I was able to talk about him and write about him in a space where in my day to day, mm. I didn't really feel like I could do that. And not because people weren't supportive, mm. but you can't really do that. You kind of have to get on with your job or you hang out with people. And yes, you can have people that you talk to about what's going on, but writing like gave me full license to be able to do that and not hold back. Mm. And I think with the book, when I knew what I was writing, which was specifically our story, um, it was, it was kind of incredible. Like the beginning bits of recalling like the first days of our relationship and that kind of stuff was immensely comforting actually. And, um, the hardest bit was definitely writing about his death. Mm -hmm. Um, and that took me like three weeks, like compared to bearing in mind, I had four months to finish the book. Like that took that like one chapter or half of a chapter took mm -hmm. like an incredibly long time. But, um, I was very keen to have a style of writing and a book that was out there, which was not a book that was currently out there at the moment. Mm. Um, and I and I wanted it to be the book that I wished that I'd had when he was alive. So all of that kind of just coalesced to give me a very strong guiding point. Mm. Um, but yeah, ma majorly it was about the comfort. Like it gave me a huge amount um of relief actually like people say it's cathartic and yeah it's I mean it's cathartic but like writing a book about stuff is no more cathartic than actually like physically and emotionally going through a grief process like that personally mm. yeah and and writing a book is also I know many authors it's quite complex there's a lot of back and forth and yeah deadlines are quite stressful yeah yeah so <laughs> um how long so it was published in 2017. Yeah, but I wrote it in 2016. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, and because of when we wanted the book to come out mm. and so on, um, yeah, there wasn't a whole load of time to write it. But it was also like, I was hugely like antisocial around that time. So mm. I knew I kind of needed to, so my sister always used to like check in on me. And she was like, how many people have you seen this week socially? <laughs> And I'd be like, I went to a shop and she was like, yeah, that doesn't really count. <laughs> so like baristas and post office workers, <laughs> baristas and post office workers, that's who I speak to. They still count. They're they people. Stay. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it basically gave me permission to just go, no, sorry, I can't go mm. to your birthday or your this mm. or your that because I had obviously a very busy day job. 
which was like a Monday to Friday jobby. Mm. And then the weekends were when I was writing the book. So actually it allowed me to just completely remove myself mm. from like my social circle, not in a bad way, but just as in I just got to escape a little bit and kind of, you know, um, to, to kind of potter around at home and to do more writing mm. and go for a run. And that was okay, because I was still doing something productive. Yeah. It wasn't like I was just kind of, you know, under a blanket watching Netflix, which I do. Yeah, no judgment <laughs> here. Yeah. Um, but there's something about that. There's something about actually sometimes withdrawing, and I do think it tends to be mm. a lot of creative people that I've spoken to say that actually withdrawing sometimes is the kindest thing they can do for themselves. I find socializing quite draining physically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh draining. God, yeah. And I love hanging out with mm. my friends, but I have to I have to be quite measured. Yeah. And when you're going, if I'm going through a different, this is where it gets tricky. Mm. There's that fine balance of withdrawing and it being unhealthy mm. and you actually cutting people off and there being a time where you're withdrawing because actually you just need to recharge because yeah. they both look the same to the yeah. outside world. <laughs> so I would 100% agree with you. And sometimes when I've got the balance wrong, like mm. by the end of like, I don't know, day three of not seeing anyone, I've just gone completely bonkers. And I'm just, and I will call someone up and they're like, have you been doing meth? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you talking so quickly? But so I, and at that point I'm like, oh, okay. So for me personally, mm. I know that two days is my cutoff. And whether or not I like it on that third day, I need to go and actually see someone who knows me mm -hmm. uh, Unfortunately, Emma baristas and shopkeepers <laughs> don't count. So it needs to be someone who knows me, who I can have a conversation mm -hmm. with um, beyond, oh, hi, mate, how you doing? And yeah. shut the door in their face. <laughs> but um, but the withdrawing stuff, it's, I mean, I'm sure that you get this because, you know, you if you use social media or you, um, you know, have a busy working life or whatever, people are quite surprised to know that there is a big part of you that needs to sequester yourself mm. away. Or mm. like, I call myself like a semi-hermit. You know, I need to have a specific amount of time where I'm not socializing with people. Mm. And it's like, my sister lives in Geneva and every time I go and visit her and her husband and my niece, you know, uh, they always used to do this thing where like they'd invite, they'd have a party, okay, for one of these days and invite people <laughs> over. And the last time I went to visit them, they were like, oh, well, shall we invite? And I said, look, we need to have a talk. <laughs> I said, your mates are lovely, but I can't do it, okay? I said, I would not be doing this in my life back yeah. in London. I was like, two people max. I need to vet these people before. But I was like, I need to vet these people before. And they were like, we had no idea. And I'm like, but now, and mm. so now it's great. So I'm going to go visit them in a few weeks. And they're like, we know that, you know, you're a bit sensitive around people. And it's like, no, I'm not sensitive around people. I just, I have to like measure out the mm. amount of myself that I spend with people. Yes. <laughs> I get too bug-eyed otherwise. Because yeah. then I've got, particularly like we met a, um, a, a very intimate screening of Deadpool 2. Yes, we did. And we were in the bar beforehand and I found that really overwhelming. Mm. And I was like, I think I'm doing the bug-eyed thing where yeah. I'm just trying to take everything in. And the yeah. only way I can physically do that other than nodding is just to make my eyes as wide as possible <laughs> to look like I'm paying attention. <laughs> so I call it my bug-eyed thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is, I think people must think I have a bladder problem. Cause like when, <laughs> when I think I went to the loo like 10 times that night maybe. Oh, and you? it's just because like, I'm not doing anything in the loo, like anything like just taking dodgy. I'm just like kind of, you know, yeah, just like hanging out by the sink, playing around with the hand lotion. No way that sounded so wrong. <laughs> 
But it's stealing <laughs> hotel soap. Yeah. Just decanting it into like my Muji bottle. No, it's. <laughs> I should do I that should though. That. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's almost like I need to kind of, I have to factor those because I don't smoke anymore. I'm like mm. an ex smoker, so I don't have the luxury I love of doing that. that section in your book where you're in hospital <laughs> with your mum and dad and they're like, do you smoke? Have you ever been a smoker? And you're like, yeah, for like eight years. <laughs> Full description of like what you smoked when, what your budget was. <laughs> like just imagine your parents' face. And all the brand names. Yeah, no, they, they, but they're such hypocrites though. Like my dad, I'm sw- I swear I'm not making this up. Or maybe, you know how your memory just gets a bit wonky. <laughs> I swear he used to be on like 60 Rothmans a day before he quit. And he still has this like very like, when he talks about smoking, he's, he's like this far away look. <laughs> like an ex-wife who he really misses and we're just like okay dad and he was like i swear to god if there was a cigarette in my hand right now (laughs) you're like you have to change the subject really quickly because it's just very uncomfortable let's talk about fresh air (laughs) and healthy living yeah yeah no hotel bathrooms i know what you mean i think you should start incorporating an outfit chain because i was thinking You can take yourself off, but you should be like when yeah. um, like a major recording artist is doing a concert and they go off stage and they come up yeah. back with like a different look. Yeah, a different outfit. I think yeah. we start incorporating Maybe. that. Speaking of which, mm. and I am going off on a slight tangent here, mm. but only because it's at the front of my mind, weirdly. Whitney, have you, did you see the movie? No, I am going to. Um, I saw the poster for it mm. and I'm going to see it though. But have, have you seen it? I saw it on Monday night. Okay. I self-medicate with films. Well, it's very beautifully mm. constructed, no doubt about it. Yeah. And the access that he's got to the family, uh, this is the filmmaker, Kevin McDonald, mm-hmm. is, is really incredible. And there's a big revelation mm-hmm. in the movie that I won't spoil here. But when it when you know, at the end of those uh, documentaries, they flash up a screen that says, blah, blah, blah happened. When that came up, I said, oh, I hope this is just leading into something else Mm -mm. but it wasn't it was the end I felt like it presented a patchwork and then I went home immediately and watched the Nick Broomfield documentary and the reason why I wanted to talk to you about it was because it's basically the depiction of um addiction and mental health in mainstream media and I felt very guilty about what my thoughts and feelings have been about towards Whitney Houston Mm -hmm. at the end of her life yeah because I probably had forgotten what an incredible talent she is and I probably had sort of um relegated her to kind of the tabloid yeah you know Mm. problems with a funny look on my face and then you move on to something else and it made me realize it's so irresponsible to the people around us whether you know them or not yeah to be so disparaging of those those issues they're massive yeah I mean I remember when those pictures I can't remember how many years ago this was but I remember this story one of the tabloids had gotten hold of pictures of her and Bobby Brown's home. Do you the remember? The bathroom. Yeah, the bathroom. Yeah. And I can still see the sink, like, as I'm talking to mm. you in my mind. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, how could this happen? You know, this is disgusting. She has a child, mm. blah, blah, blah. Very judgmental mm. and very... But also, um, you know, the way that we report around stuff like that, I, st- I, I mean, I don't know if it's gotten hugely better, was there's no context to it. It was literally mm. like this is a picture of her bathroom, look at like, basically look pipe. at, yeah, yeah, look at the crack pipe, look at like this this complete shambles of a human or whatever. And like, when I was going through all of this stuff with Rob, like basically when I knew what, what was kind mm. of going on, um, 
like I before I knew I was hugely judgmental about drug use so for example he knew uh, a lady who was a heroin addict who had two kids and I remember saying to him um you know I can't believe like how could she still use if she's got two kids and I didn't know he was obviously using at the time but he was like look you know if you can just try not to judge her too harshly because like I, and I, I just remember thinking, you know, I don't know what he's talking about or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then when I kind of went through this whole like thing around his recovery with him um, and uh, whether that was listening to him talk about his own experiences and what was going on in his head and so on. Um, I mean, Emma, it completely changed like everything that I knew about what addiction was like Mm. and so on. And just also why people use, like why they can't stop, like how important context Mm. was to all of this stuff. Um, And but I thought about it and I just thought, you know, why did I not know this? Like, or why did I hold that point of view? Mm. And it is unfortunately because very often, you know, whether you're at school, like I remember being taught about drugs Mm. when I was at school and it was done in this very like, drugs are very bad and if you do them, you will die. Which, okay, yes, like those are two things that are kind of true. Mm. But it doesn't tell you anything about like the um, the nuance of it or how someone could kind of like get in that position or like how they work or how, like how they affect the brain or um, why, for example, I don't know, like heroin is like a classic drug in that um, there's no specific, like talk to any like expert, there's no specific economic background, mm-hmm. whatever it is, like race, um, you know, there's no predisposition. It's not genetic like alcoholism is. Um, so that should kind of tell you something about like how it possibly affects people and how people get hooked on it. But we don't know any of that information. Mm. So you kind of go from this very like top level, people who do drugs are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, they could stop, but they choose not to. Like choice is obviously, you know, huge word in this. They choose not to. Uh, conclusion, they must be very bad and selfish people. Yeah. And that's that's hugely problematic because mm-hmm. like most of us will know someone who struggles with addiction mm-hmm. of some kind. Well, I feel like we bandy around the word addicted, addiction and addict mm. really casually now. Yeah. I've written features about am I addicted to my smartphone? But that, <laughs> in it, does it take away the, the strength of that word? I mean, obviously addiction applies to anything that you can't mm. stop doing or have become dependent upon. But does that water it down? Like, do you think the fact that we use it for such sort of everyday? I mean, smartphone addiction is an interesting one because um, that I think is actually a thing. Like, Mm. so for example, there's a hospital in London that actually does a recovery program around addiction to technology or your smartphone or whatever, which to you or me, we might view it, and I guess maybe this is the way to look at like alcoholism. We're like, we kind of project our own experience on what someone else who actually has a much bigger problem might be going mm-hmm. through. But like, let's say if you have a technology or a smartphone addiction or a gaming addiction, mm-hmm. right? To the point where you aren't leaving your house, you're not engaging with people, you are incapable of having like um, actual legitimate human relationships with other people that actually kind of is the basis of what addiction is. Like Mm -hmm. whether it's like 
you know, um, I don't know, alcohol addiction, which can be hugely chaotic because it impacts like people's behaviors mm. to a drug like heroin, where you actually probably, if you, as long as you had like regular access to it, you could probably be an addict and completely like function normally in society and no one would really know because your behavior isn't as chaotic. Mm. But obviously the the sort of the other side to it is you're probably not socializing with people. Um, you're probably quite isolated. And so all of those behaviors, mm. I think you can definitely attribute to an addictive behavior but I, I do agree like mm. I do think you know like I was talking about like Linda McCartney sorry I'm gonna laugh and I don't mean to like trivialize it but like Linda I McCartney said, sausages. I, yeah I yeah. said I'm addicted to Linda McCartney sausages now now am I really like if if a day or a week went by <laughs> yes I had them yesterday before you judge me but like if I had a week where I don't know my supermarket didn't stock them. Would that be a bad week? Yes. <laughs> would it? Would it literally mean I had to call some like dodgy person up to deliver some sausages to me? It's a completely different thing. So <laughs> you're right. I think we should probably like measure how we use it as a word. Yes. Because I I also think especially around like um, especially around like alcoholism. Like mm. my God. Like you know. I've, I see people in complete denial about like loved ones who are alcoholics. Like, oh, they have a slight problem or because mm. it's not theirs to have to manage or like, let's say their yeah. their alcoholism is like a bit like low level, but it's mm -hmm. still alcoholism. Mm -hmm. But because like alcohol is kind of more accepted, it's, I just don't think we really give it the uh, seriousness that it, is due do you know what I mean absolutely and it's so socially acceptable to yeah. have a drink and it's socially acceptable to be drunk yes and it's socially acceptable to be hung over yeah and we were having this conversation before we yeah, started yeah. recording I feel as though teetotalism is in my future mm. but I just because I I cannot fathom it feels like for me as someone who works for myself I already work six days a week sometimes seven doing all of my content I sometimes and, and to, to lose a day to a hangover yeah I just imagine my accountant just coming in and going idiot yes <laughs> idiot <laughs> yeah I mean that's exactly it I have like a summer drinks thing on Tuesday mm -hmm. and in my head I already know that I'm going to have to back out of it because mm. I can't afford to lose a Wednesday like yeah. I just can't afford that time and the idea of and actually, this is what some of it does. It robs you of time in which you could actually be doing mm. amazing stuff that you really enjoy doing. Yeah. I don't know that I've got that balance right yet, though. No, I haven't. And when I'm functioning well, like when I'm working out, when I'm eating right, like that's when all the good stuff yeah. falls into place. So then I have to not give myself a hard time if I do have a drink. Because yeah. actually, again, because it's socially acceptable, I then have that, you know, devil and angel on my shoulder saying, yeah. You deserved a night out with your friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I find it very, yeah. very confusing, conflicting, complicated topic. Yeah. Well, I see, I don't know what kind of drinker you are, but um, when I was sort of talking to a friend of mine, this is when I kind of made a definitive choice just to drink less. Mm. And she was like, you know, but why don't you just have like one or two? And I was like, what? We would not be having this conversation <laughs> if I was a type of person that had the restraint to go, oh yeah, I'm only going to have one and mm. then just jog on home. I was like, obviously, <laughs> we've gotten to the point mm. where I tr I don't know like I got a taxi and tried to pay my taxi driver in euros and has <laughs> have lost a shoe that has like brought me to this point where <laughs> I'm like mm, maybe I should like not drink as much mm. or 
my drinking can be problematic in certain circumstances. And I'm also very easily led. So if someone else yes. is like, whippity doo, let's like order another bottle of wine. I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah, I, I have to be with someone who's better at it than me. Absolutely. Yeah. In order to not, yeah. because I would be, I'm the sort of person that when someone says, oh, should we have another one? In my head, I'm going, yeah. But then I'm sussing out all of the nonverbal cues in the body language and that will they judge me if I say yes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, then I think if you just want another drink, have another drink. But it's about, yeah. it's about how it makes you feel. Yeah. And that gets, I mean, the older I get, the higher that price um, mm. seems to be. And I just remember yeah. like when I, um, my last team that I manage, you know, are fairly um, younger than me and in their 20s. <laughs> And they're just like, oh, but why do you have to go home? And I'm like, because I do not have as many electrolytes as you do. <laughs> You're going to be fine, sunshine. It's going to take me three days yeah, to get yeah. over this. So, yeah. Yeah, it just isn't worth it. <laughs> and in the moment, you know, it's so it's so complicated. Mm. Yeah, so I do find that. So I find that we have, I think it's a good thing that we bandy the word addiction around because yeah. it is opening up these sorts of conversations. Mm. And these sorts of conversations can only be a good thing, whether that's talking about addiction and taking away the idea of a heroin addict being what you used to see in the movies. Yeah. Oh God. It's like spotting. Yeah. Yes. It's like, or the typical, the typical heroin story is always high flyer, then, you know, on the streets, no teeth. And it's, yeah, it's very stark because that makes good movies. Yeah. But also I, I grew up in the eighties and Every movie where you were mugged, it was a particular kind of young man in a hoodie. Um, every, you know, there were all these stereotypes yeah. that we've kind of, um, what are they called? The cues, the subtle cues that actually mean that when you're dealing with real life situations, you're potentially adding that layer of interpretation on which is completely incorrect. Well, absolutely. I mean, when I was, um, my agent and I were looking for publishers <clears throat> for the book, And one publisher who we didn't end up going with, um, you know, one of the questions that she asked me was like, how could you not know? I mean, okay, I'm saying it as if it's like an interrogation. She didn't like use that tone, but it basically was like, how could you not know Mm. that your husband had a heroin addiction for three years while you were married and you didn't know? And I'm like, because A, sorry, I don't know what a heroin addiction looks like, Mm. not having done heroin or like being ever taught about it Mm -hmm. in school or whatever. So I didn't know like what the symptoms were. And also like a lot of it was masked by his depression. So Mm. like when I thought things were just really odd, he would kind of say, oh, I'm just quite depressed at the moment. And also it's impossible to extricate that because he was actually obviously depressed. But the other thing was that my view of a heroin addict was was exactly those Mm -hmm. stereotypes. And having spoken to like a ton of like drug experts about it, you know, um, so I spoke to like David Nutt, who is like one of the like leading drugs um, experts in the UK. And he basically said, look, like there was once upon a time um, in the UK uh, that opiates or heroin wasn't illegal, but you could actually get it Um, So you could kind of, I think I'm probably going to get this wrong, but there was a way in which if you were an addict, you could use it and it would be okay because you could still function and like do a job and Mm -hmm. so on. And I'm not, I'm sorry, that sounds like I'm advocating it. But what I'm trying to say is that if you were someone who happened to be an addict, you could still manage to have like a functioning life. And Mm -hmm. then they kind of completely changed the policies and the rules around it so that 
what ended up happening or what ends up happening is when you're thinking of that guy who's going to snatch your handbag or whatever mm. is basically someone who is a heroin user who cannot get heroin to stop himself and his body from being or herself from being sick mm -hmm. so heroin causes a sickness unlike any other type mm -hmm. of drug so yes you could and in some cases yes you know it is kind of understandable to moralize it and say um well that person has turned to a life of crime to mm -hmm. get drugs but why are they using those drugs like they're not using them because they're like you know, jetting off to a party. They're using it because they don't really want to be sick. Mm. And so for me, that was like a really big understanding in that there is like a swathe of like, um, of opiate users who continue to use opiates because they don't really want to be ill. And I'm just like, I, w I had no way of knowing that because for me, a heroin user or an opiate user mm. was like, you know. Getting high. Yeah, as opposed to managing away from or injecting or whatever. Mm. Yeah, and 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 definitely like getting high and you know hanging out with their mates. Mm. And I'm like, but actually, like her users are like notoriously sol solitary. Mm. Um, and also like yeah, like if you saw Rob, like he was you know like cooking dinner for me and working away and doing other things. So, like, how was I ever supposed to like piece that together? And also, there's the um, there's a very secretive element to oh god, yeah. To heroin in particular yeah yeah i um, mean mm. yeah and yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, you no, no, just no. coming back to the sort of different it's that sickness thing it was just i remembered um i listened to an interview with kevin smith the you know who kevin yeah. smith is uh the writer and filmmaker and jason muse jay oh yeah was on heroin for a long time i think i'm getting that right and um yeah and he was like, you know, you, you can't be unsympathetic to a heroin user and just be like, I'll just stop doing it because that doesn't cover it. Yeah. And then I think Kevin Smith was saying that he spoke to one of his. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of Jay's doctors and he described the sickness to him and he said, you know, pins and needles, it's like that, but throughout your entire body. Yeah. And even that just made me shudder when I heard yeah. it, the idea of it. Yeah. I mean, and also it's not like um, the sickness is like awful, I imagine. Uh, but I also saw Rob going through it. So mm -hmm. I kind of know that it was awful. Unbearable is how a lot of people would describe it. Um, and I went on a lot of drugs forums to try and like find out what it was like to make mm. sense of it. Um, but once that kind of sickness had passed, like he uh, showed me some notes that he wrote to his doctor because um, he needed to kind of get some sleeping pills to 
help with some of the insomnia around it um was that once the physical withdrawal had finished like the um, mental withdrawal was just unlike anything any other drug that you would have ever known about or dealt with and um and just basically uh that was the thing that just kept pulling him back in in that trying to deal with all of that mm-hmm. um and also because like obviously if you are an addict for a number of years there is a lot a hell of a lot of shame um that you have accumulated so that kind of then just all comes crashing down mm-hmm. in addition to whatever it was that you were using to kind of numb uh you know to numb yourself in that you could kind of function in the world mm-hmm. um And some people might say that that's a very self-indulgent way of looking at it. But I just, I feel that it kind of points to the fact that we are not necessarily that great Mm. as a society at being able to address all of that stuff like quite early on. So you end up getting someone who's basically an adult Mm. who just doesn't really know how to cope or deal with it in any other way. And you and I might, or I might sit here and go, well, you just kind of like get on with it. But I don't have... Or I don't didn't have the same mental health issues that Rob did, or you know. So how on earth am I supposed to be able to apply what I would do in a situation when we're not on we're not on an even playing field mm. when it comes to addiction? I think that's what everyone does. Like they're like, well, I wouldn't do it, and it's like, okay, but you're not you're not you're not the same person, mm. and you may not have had the same issues. So I think it's like, it's, why do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like someone offering you a canopy and someone saying, oh yeah, and someone else saying, I'm not hungry, I've just eaten. Yeah. You're coming, <laughs> you're coming at it from yeah. canapes. I can't believe I brought yeah. it back to canapes. <laughs> but it's, you can't, obviously, as yeah. you say. And also in the book, you talked about trying to find resources to help you. Yeah. Once you realised that you were actually helping somebody with a drug addiction, mm. in addition to depression, yeah, you struggle to find resources. Ugh, it was so bad. I mean, I found that on the one hand, I was really glad that there seemed to be quite a lot of resources out there for someone who, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this may have changed because this is a few, we're talking about, you know, four or five years ago. Um, but there seemed to be a lot of resources, for example, to help Rob. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, this is, this is great. And I'm very glad that he supported. However... I have to, A, maintain this complete facade in front of most of my friends and family. And I have to go to work Mm. in addition to like dealing with all of this stuff that's going on at home. So like, how the hell am I supposed to do that without completely going mad? Because I need someone to talk to about this and try to find a support group, which was very slim pickings. And my own borough didn't do it. So I had to like drive like 30 minutes on a Saturday morning or 40 minutes to get to a different like borough. And... That was amazing while it lasted, but we then moved to a completely different part of London where they only had like one support group and they were just complete assholes. Like they just dealt with it so badly. And the entire like um, vibe of the place was just to be very suspicious of your loved one. So basically the, the premise of the group was if you had a loved one, who struggled with addiction, this was a place you could come and talk to about what was going on. And I went to one session and unlike this other amazing support group that I had been to in Lewisham, this was like, you know, uh, some some woman was really paranoid that her husband was going to relapse. He was an alcoholic. And the guy running the group basically was feeding that paranoia. And I, yeah, and I, I remember coming home and like Rob said to me, you know, hey, like, how did the group go? Was it okay? And I just burst into tears 
And I was like, the group was really bad and I forgot my backpack there, so I have to go back. And he was like, and I should have like tweaked this. He was like, no, 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 listen, you don't worry. I will go back and get your backpack. And I was like, oh, thanks, hon. I was like, thank you so much for doing that. And then later on the following day, I get a call from the group going, uh, the group leader going, I'm really sorry but uh, you will not be able to come back to this group. I, and I was like, I wanted to say, Mofo, I was not going to come back anyway. But I was like, uh, just out of interest, why? And he was like, because your husband came, called me the C word, and then <laughs> <laughs> took your backpack and then left. And like, I just texted Rob and I was like, what did you do? This was like the only support group. And he was like, he's just sent this amazing message. And he was like, I'm really sorry, but no one makes my tough wife cry and gets away with it oh. and I was just like oh and like it wasn't on the one hand it was like unbelievably sweet of him yes I didn't plan to go back to that support group but it did like hit home that like I was like I literally don't know where to go now like mm. I don't know I don't know how to get support around this and then I think I just got a therapist in the end because I was just like, I don't really know. Mm. Like there's no kind of, um, there seems to be no money coming in from the government to like support the loved ones of addicts, which is really mad because you're the one bringing home the money and like mm. creating a stable environment for them. Which is why it's interesting that one of the first things you said about the book is it's the book that I wish I'd had when I was going Absolutely. through this. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can't create government funding. You, no. can, you can do as much campaigning as you mm. want, but ultimately you have created a resource for somebody have you had mm. anyone and as a as a journalist we get onto the, your body of work I said it to you earlier and I'll say it again <laughs> I wrote it in my notes <laughs> you write the kind of the stuff that adds value to the world thank you, you Emma <laughs> <laughs> no but you do the topics you cover in like, your twitter feed everyone needs to follow you because you'll be like looking for people with uh, you know mm. experience of such and such and it's mm. And every time I see one of those, I think, well, I'm not quite right for that one. But when I am, you wait. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it's mm. the kind of stuff, and with each and every one, which is why I keep coming back to it, is it's the kind of thing that will be a helpful resource to somebody. And so it makes complete sense yeah. that that was one of your strongest motivating factors in writing the book. Yeah. Um, and, mm, sorry, gone. And I love the fact yeah. that the book is called Chase the Rainbow. And it doesn't have a... Um, what am I trying to say? Like a, a head, a headline grabbing, scary. Mm. It's beautiful, and the book looks nice as well. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but yeah. do you know what I mean? It was all of that intended yeah. as well. Well, so originally, and this was a uh, a fight that I did win. Mm. The publisher wanted it to be called something with a colon of. Um, and this was one woman's or one man. And I said, no, like, mm -hmm. I mean, the, okay, don't get me wrong. When I show you the paperback, that does have it on there, but it's done in a way that I feel does the book justice. Mm -hmm. But I was like, in the, in the, the first, like for the hardback, I was like, I don't want it to have that because it's very important that there was journalism that was part of that memoir. Mm -hmm. And I like interview people to kind of just bolster some of the, um, the questions actually that I had after mm. Rob passed away and I just needed an authority around it. And I think what I had, you know, I've been in journalism for about, um, you know, 15 years and have seen like or worked across lots of different types and ways and means of journalism. But what I think the book taught me about and obviously subsequently writing about it is that 
I think in journalism we have a danger of sometimes reporting about things, especially like life-related things, in a very particular type of way. So we're used to seeing, you know, oh, the headline has to be salacious, otherwise mm -hmm. people won't read it. And I'm sorry, but that's absolute bollocks. Mm, like the strength of your story lies in how you tell it. And you can tell it in a way um, that is neutral, that doesn't shaft to the person that is telling you the story. Which, you know, I mean, like when I tell people, so I've started dating, when I tell people I'm a journalist, they're like, oh, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. because there's no trust there because mm -hmm. they've seen what has happened in journalism. And I'm not talking about all of the stuff that's necessarily come out as, as part of the Levinson inqui inquiry. It's more also, they don't trust journalists to take their story and actually do something noble with it. Mm. And what I've kind of figured out is there is like, don't get me wrong, like there's a there's a definite balance of of how you do it. But I think that that type of journalism is something I'm really interested in or writing in general of like someone telling me or me telling someone's story, which may have been a story that I had no idea about that shines kind of like a little torchlight mm -hmm. into, a, you know, their corner of the world. Um, and a educates me about something um, I don't know. So, for example, like what it's like to be asexual or never having fallen in love or mm. whatever that might be. But also, there might be someone else reading it who's just like, "Oh yeah, that's me." Like I didn't know that, and so mm. now there's a story where it actually reflects my opinions or my lifestyle in a way that's kind of um, that's kind of great, and mm. it's not done in a way that makes me feel ashamed or weird or whatever it is about it. Like, yeah. I've learned that there's a space for that, and I think that's something like I'm very wholeheartedly into. It's a tough space to, um, it's a tough space. It is, yeah. Because you're right, <laughs> <laughs> um, clickbait, yeah. all of that kind of stuff, listicles, yeah. but actually thoughtful, composed pieces. Yeah. I was sort of few and far between. Well, I feel I'm giving you like a false impression. Like I do really still like this. Like I don't write them, but I love reading them. Oh, um, God, yeah. And like I communicate like with my sister, like predominantly in gifts and like memes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is my life. Yeah. But I like, yeah. but, but I like, I like the long weed. Yes. Like, yeah. I watched Whitney and I had lots of feelings. Yeah. And then I sort of exchanged a few messages with Terry White. And mm. we were like, yeah, it's extraordinary. And I thought, but there's something that I can't quite put my finger on. Yeah. Enter Simran Hans, the film <laughs> critic, who just nails every single thought and mm. feeling on the head. And yeah. now I'm like, how many times can I direct message her before she blocks me? <laughs> <laughs> Have you checked today? Has she blocked you? <laughs> no. I, well, because I, I haven't opened the discussion yet. Okay. So, you know, I want to be on my A game. But anyway... <laughs> Um, going through something like this, mm. writing a book about it, and then doing podcasts with someone like me. Yeah. How are you able to own this place, make it a positive space, move the story forward, meaning move the um, discussion mm. of addiction and depression forward, but not be defined by it? So uh, to answer kind of the first part of your question, mm. um, I guess, so for me, I gravitate towards writing, especially when it's writing around grief um, or like whether it's suicide or addiction. Um, I gravitate to writing that moves me, but is also quite like unsentimental in how it talks about things. Mm. So um, there's a way to craft something um, that really could be poignant and touches people but also to talk about it like in a way 
where you have got a bit of your humor in it. So for example, like for me, humor was a really big part of how I have gotten through my grieving process. Um, and it's obviously like in the book. Mm. Um, after I did the first round of press for this, I was a bit worried of just like, oh my God, like, you know, what does this mean? And I don't really want to be pigeonholed for um, always being an advocate for, for this kind of stuff. Mm. I, I will probably always be an advocate because there are just not many people in that mm. space. But I think it's about the different kind of work uh, or the different types of work that I do. Mm -hmm. So for example, there are people out there who only write about their own experience. So the, the danger around pigeonholing would have been if I had come out with this book and then that's all that I did. So if I mm -hmm. only did like books that were, um, uh, you know, about, um, I don't know, like grief or suicide or addiction or whatever um, in the years to come, then um, I can kind of understand that that would then end up becoming this thing that I am mm. defined by. Um, but I have just learned that like, if I expand what I'm doing in terms of my repertoire and what I write about, so for example, women's empowerment is something, or women's journalism is, is, is a huge, huge mm. part of what I do. Um, and that is no less important than like the mental health, mm. um, you know, writing that I do. But I can, I think I can kind of, do both and I think absolutely. I need yeah like I absolutely kind of need to tell myself um that it's important to do that because also like this stuff is kind of not this podcast because that would be rude of me <laughs> but um it's it can be exhausting like mm. I remember like after the first round of press um for Chase the Rainbow like I had to like not talk to anyone or mm. do anything like that for about a week like uh, as in you know or just not think about it and not mm. deal with it and and in a good way in that like I just didn't want to go on radio or whatever um because it does take a lot like it's like stuff like this doesn't take it's not emotionally exhausting but like if I was to go like and do an hour's panel and talk about mental health and for men for mm. example I will then need to go immediately home and have a very quiet evening and just kind of nurture myself a little bit and what that tells me is that this isn't something that I can do full time nor mm. would I kind of want to because I don't think that that's particularly good for me but my life is also moving on. And so whatever that looks like in terms of, you know, what I'm doing work-wise or whether like I'm seeing other people or whatever, I love Rob and I am always passionate to kind of talking about and dedicating a portion of my life to talking about things that will help other people. Mm -hmm. But um, I am probably not gonna do that full time mm -hmm. because um, I don't think that any particular life event, whether it's something as huge as a death um, or something, you know, small, like losing a job, I, I don't think that you should let things like that define you because mm -hmm. people die like all the time. Like people will continue to die in my lifetime of people that I know. Um, and and there the kind of has to be a way for me to figure out how to kind of mourn that in an appropriate way Um give comfort maybe to other people when I feel able to, mm. but then to just sort of put it on the shelf that it needs to be put on, revisit it from time to time in my own private way, mm -hmm. but then to kind of move forward. This is a big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we can, you know, uh, mm. go into it in whichever way is comfortable. How does one move on? Mm. Brackets or like parentheses. Um, 
do you give yourself permission? Do you instinctively know when the time is right if you try to do it too soon? Is it, yeah. does it make the situation worse? Yeah, so there is a lot of trial and error that I have undertaken um, during the last three years. Like, so one, definitely, um, I have tried things where I've moved on or done things too quickly. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, you know, had gone to a celebration of a sort where I thought I would be completely fine and actually really needed to remove myself from there. Or like even stuff like going to work on a day mm. when I knew I should have worked from home, um, but I went to work and then basically like started crying at the like top of the road and then just needed to turn around and get back on the train again. Mm. And all of that stuff I view as just being incredibly valuable because it's teaching me um, that there is this other massive part of me that isn't conscious and isn't present all the time because it's kind of like ticking away in the background. Mm. But from time to time, it will put its hand up and go, Purna, you know what? This is just not quite the right thing for mm. you to be doing. And I've learned to like kind of heed that part of me a lot more than I probably used to do before. Um, but generally, I have found that people have the best intentions and will try and give advice around maybe where I should be or what I should be doing and so on. And in some instances, it has literally been a game changer in terms of giving me a soft little nudge to like, to move on. So for example, I was living in the flat that Rob and I lived in uh, for about a year and a half after he passed away or about a year after he passed away. And I just said to my best mate, you know what? Like, I feel like maybe I should think about possibly moving. And she said it in a very gentle way, but she said, I definitely think you should think about moving. Like, you know, that would mm. be a good thing for you. And it just kind of, that was the push that I needed. On the other hand, when people have told me, you know, um, oh, are you sure you're not like, you know, making it harder for yourself? Are you mm -hmm. sure you I'm like, if, if I was not on the phone to you and if you were in front of me right now, I would like garrot you with my yeah. own shoelace <laughs> because like, honestly, like, what do you know about my situation? Like, has yeah. this, like, this sounds really harsh, but it's like, did this literal thing happen to you? If it didn't, like, I do not want to hear like stuff like, are you making it harder? So mm -hmm. it's also learning to listen that everyone will have advice for what you should be doing. But it's really working out like what's, and I, I have learned, also learned that the hard mm. way. I think with dating, for example, um, I felt like I should be doing it because maybe it would mean that I wasn't so broken by the mm. entire experience. And I can say that in retrospect, obviously there was no way I was like this articulate when I was going through it, <laughs> running around like, you know, downloading Tinder and then like deleting it and throwing my phone into the bin. <laughs> But um, but like when I actually did go on a date, I it was because I was ready to. So mm. it wasn't like because I think someone asked me, you know, did you did you feel slightly weird or did you feel guilty or like you were cheating on Rob or and they didn't say it in a again the the tone was very like genuine and very mm. like inquiring. But I was like, no, like I didn't feel any of those things because I actually waited until it was the right time. Um, and then kind of like went into dating. And then when I haven't wanted to date, mm -hmm. I don't date. Mm. So it's just very much um, what I would say to answer your bigger question around moving on. Um, I think it's, it's that learning to live with your grief in a way where it doesn't overwhelm you all the time mm -hmm. as it does or as it did for me in like the first year where it, I was literally like always I felt like I was like 
two steps away from like losing it. And so I would just kind of try and hold it together as much as I can. And um, what I've just done is um, uh, it's it's a mixture of lots of different things. So it's that spending time on my own. Mm -hmm. It's saying no to a hell of a lot of stuff that people expect you to do. Or like, even if that's like staying later at parties and I'm like, no, like I am going home because mm -hmm. that's what I need to do for me. But you stay and mm -hmm. like, you know, do whatever. Um, and it's also, I think, just making very powerful decisions for myself. So uh, first year, I couldn't make any decisions. Um, also because I was like pretty depressed for like half of it. But um, but after that kind of fog passed a little bit, it was about thinking in a gentle way, what does my future look like and how would I like it to look like? So not something lame like, which is what people want for me, I'm afraid, is like, will I meet someone again? Like that is such a bad, terrible goal. Like whether or not, whether or not you have been through what I've been through or whatever it is, like building your happiness or your, what, building your happiness or your future around this unknown person for me um, is not something that I can do. It's not something I'm willing, I'm not willing to trade away my present for this fairy tale future that I am supposed oh. to be having. It's total bullshit. I want to leap across this sofa <laughs> and hold you. There are too many cushions. There are. They're very comfortable. <laughs> Thank you. You have just, you, that is completely and utterly mm. the words that I'll be stealing <laughs> from, from you. You're many of welcome. the words I should be stealing, but I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. People wanting you to tether yourself to something that doesn't exist yet or yeah. isn't something that you can control is for me as an independent you know a woman <laughs> who makes my own living yeah I, I sometimes find it insulting for people I know different circumstances yeah, yeah. completely but I just when people say that that's what they want for me I think what about what I'm doing now it's yeah. pretty awesome actually screw yeah, you yeah yeah I yeah. get a bit defensive well <laughs> yeah I mean I think it's it I god that's like totally natural because I think that that person doesn't realize they're doing it, but by mm. saying that kind of stuff, by default, it, you feel like your life and your achievements are not recognized because you don't have that thing that they're saying you mm. should be going for. And also like, I've kind of tried it, not in terms of like going, I'll, I'll be very honest with you, not in terms of like going for a, a, you know, a relationship or like seriously dating people, but it's more like when I've kind of thought about it, I'm just like, actually it's just, I thought about it very strongly last year because mm. like, you know, 99% of my mates are like married and have kids. And I kind of um, went a bit batshit and I was like, oh my God, like, you know, I am I know that like, I am not gonna be where they are in a year in like possibly two years, three mm. years. And also like, but that made me feel really uncomfortable inside, like as in very upset because mm. I just thought, but hang on, like, so rather than me thinking, well, actually, do I want that stuff? I was just like, but, mm, you know, I'm, that's not an option to me. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like, which is just such a negative, awful generator of emotion. Mm. Because you're only, like, when you're stuck in that rut, you're only looking at what you don't have. And part of me was like, hang on, I've got, like, immense amounts of freedom, like, flexibility like I could literally do whatever the hell I want with my life mm. which is kind of what I did I kind of quit my job and went traveling and I was like kind of maybe look at it from that point of view versus like what is not in your future like mm. you kind of get to pick what's in your future to a certain extent 
Yeah, I remember saying to a friend a few years ago when I kind of rebelled against all the people saying, you should get a boyfriend, you should, do mm. your window for having children is closing. And I remember saying, everyone is projecting a black hole on my life. Yeah. Everyone is saying there's something missing. Yeah. But I've never felt more complete. I'm like making my own money. I live in a place that I really like. And yet I'm everywhere I go, yeah. I'm being told that something's not quite 100%. And then I just was, you know, <laughs> don't speak to those people anymore. And it to be just yeah. a little note in your circumstances as well, I now have become close to people who are living the life that I aspire to. And that makes such a big difference. Yeah, it does. Well, also because you kind of reach a point where you gravitate towards those people because mm. um, they also just seem like super grounded. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I love my parent friends and they are great and we catch up when we catch up and so on. Mm. But also they're like frazzled as shit. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I kind of need a lie down afterwards. Like I need a lie down. So I'm mm. like, I don't know how they're dealing with it. But it's like, on the one hand, I'm very glad that we've caught up. But on the other hand, I find that I absolutely need that kind of counterpart of usually it's actually, it tends to be older women. And when I say older, I mean like kind of um, like late 50s, 60s, where we can just kind of have a chat about mm. stuff. And I look at like, there's this whole vibe that they give off, you know, where literally like nothing could knock them from oh, yeah. where they're standing and that just radiates out and I just look at them and I'm like in this creepy way I really want to be you I want to wear mm. your skin and learn that is secrets. creepy <laughs> that, is, that is creepy but it's like just as an FYI yeah obviously I don't tell them that <laughs> you just write it in your diary yeah, yeah. but like I want to be them and mm. I and I think that it's very easy to forget like as your life goes through different changes and the older that you get, that mm -hmm. you still really need people that you kind of aspire to be, Yeah, you know, who aren't people in the media or like who are celebrities that are like actually just genuine, mm. genuinely decent, normal people. Yeah, yeah. totally. And yeah. I definitely find that as soon as I became, and it sounds like you did the same thing, as soon as I decided what I wanted, like, what will make me happy? What do I want my yeah. future to look like? Once I was honest with myself about that, mm. um, it was amazing the, the things and people that left and the things that people that arrived. Yeah. And I wouldn't change it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just, it's, I don't, I mean, people always go, are you happy? And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Mm. Like, um, I mean, yesterday I had a bag of McCoy's crisps and I was happy for about like five minutes. Like, what flavor? Obviously salt and vinegar. I mean, <laughs> greatest crisps known to man. They really are. But I'm like, shouldn't you be asking yourself like what gives your life meaning? Like mm. what is currently in your life? Like, and what did you choose out of that? And are they the things that you want to have in it. I mean, I know if you have kids, you can't exactly go, yeah, change my mind. <laughs> yeah, there is that. <laughs> like reverse that process. <laughs> but um, but that that kind of search for meaning, um, and I know that that will change from year to year, mm. but I just feel that like regularly asking myself that question is really important. I I'm not a big fan of the expression, everything happens for a reason. <gasps> yeah. But I thought you might have a similar reaction. <laughs> but... And I wouldn't say it with the big things. I think something that yeah. you've been through is massive. But one of the questions that I ask myself when something's happening mm. and I'm like, I'm having thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And as you said earlier, they're yeah. percolating in the back of my brain and I'm like, something's coming. Yeah. And I think, right, what am I supposed to learn from this? Yeah. And I feel like that's a really useful question. 
I completely agree. I mean, I know I kind of made a noise, but... Um, no, everything happens yeah. for a reason is... Yeah. So my the reason why I find that problematic, the other version mm. of everything happens for a reason, is because it kind of... You well, you obviously know this. It kind of like gives over to this idea that there's some like puppet master like pulling mm. our strings of destiny or whatever. Mm. But I am a firm believer that in timing. So I think mm. that there are right and wrong times for things. And so, for example, at various points in my life, when I have been pushing and pushing a door that should not be opened, or it's just not the right time, um, the consequences can be disastrous if you just keep pushing. Mm for something um, which is just not what should be happening. And I've just noticed that when things are meant to be flowing in, or when I say meant to be flowing, is that you kind of know, but like these are all, it sounds intangible, but they're actually very definitive things. So it could be where you are at a certain point in your career, mm. your skill set, um, you know, your financial circumstances, like the people who are in your network, like all of those things kind of coalesce to make something right for you at that point in time. Mm. Um, and also your intuition around things, like your intuition around whether someone is a good person or a bad person to work with. Mm. So I do, I do believe that there are kind of moments when, yes, something might, everything happens for a reason, but like that reason is not woo woo. That reason is like <laughs> yeah. quantifiable stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree. I think, as you say, it gives over to the puppet master or it's like, <laughs> I'll take whatever life throws at me and... Mm. I don't know. I I'm like you. I'm not a big yeah. fan of it. No. I just I I think you make your own luck. Yeah. And also like I don't know. Like I kind of believed. This sounds really bleak, so I'm going to try it, but it's not actually bleak, but it's like I genuinely believed before all of this stuff that happened with Rob that um you know everyone has like one huge love story in them and then mm. once you kind of got that love story everything else was going to work out. Like this is kind of how, um, you know, innocent I was around things. And life just doesn't work that way. Like mm. you can have your love story and it can be amazing, but it's also going to kind of be quite challenging. And so I don't know, like, um, I don't know that life like fully prepares you for that, but it's Hollywood again. It's brought is. up on movies where yeah. the end of the movie is where you fall in love and yeah. you both say it at the same time. But yeah. then what? It's like, yeah, then it's like stuff like who needs to empty the dishwasher and... <laughs> it's know. also, and um, Sam and I on the last episode talked about this, where we talked about happiness isn't a destination. No. It's a, a continuing journey that yeah. you have to work at and yeah. navigate. Yeah, I was about to say pit stop, but that's not very <laughs> um, poetical. <laughs> Um, but like also no emotion is like happiness is an emotion mm. like you know I mean whether you're like angry or sad or whatever like that's also like a huge thing that I had to remember um, and still actually have to tell myself um, when I'm feeling unbelievably sad about stuff but it's like you'll probably feel a bit differently tomorrow mm. and that's kind of how it works yeah because it's not like I've been perpetually sad for like you know a thousand days or however long it's been like there has been lots and lots of different feelings and experiences and emotions mm. during that time and that's for somebody i.e me i don't know if you're the same sensory overload emotional sensory overload mm. for me sometimes that's when i go to sleep <laughs> I'm feeling lots of things I just medicate by going to bed yeah I mean I've been yeah, I'm very lucky 
that I can do. Actually, Emma, you're pretty much the only other person that like can do that apart from possibly me and my dad. <laughs> Whenever I say that, people just like their eyes start twitching because I think like the majority of people find it difficult to sleep. Mm. But I'm like, no, I sleep like a ninja. Like, or rather <laughs> sleep is like the thing that I always retreat to yeah. because um, I don't, I, I kind of view it as like my body just being a champion and just going, you know what? Here's my act of kindness for you Pause. today. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I get insomnia, mm. but if in the day it all gets too much, because yeah. I, I, a couple of years ago was at the point where if I got an email from somebody and I wasn't sure of the tone, yeah. I'd spiral. Okay. I could just go to bed yeah. and I would, my body would be like, okay, fine. You can be unconscious oh, for okay. a bit. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and it would just put, it mm. would pause those feelings, but that was the only way I could do it. Yeah. But I think that that's your, um, that's your other Emma, like just kind of, you know, just stroking your hair a little bit, just going there, there. Go to sleep. Yes. <laughs> and then wake up and watch Real Housewives. Yeah. But then do some work <laughs> at some point, please. Um, now, tell me about these workshops and talks that you've got in the pipeline. Okay, so I am going to start launching or doing my own workshops and talks. Woo-woo, I'm excited. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it kind of came out of a need of, um, so okay, as you know, I write a lot across um, mental well-being or like experiences that like people might be um, going through, um, maybe feeling quite isolated and alone and what they're going through. Um, and also just other things like, um, you know, working on a passion project while you have a full-time job mm. or like... Ah, the side hustle. Yes. Uh-huh. I kind of feel like that's, uh, that's not quite the word that I am going to use. But I like side hustle. Yes. 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 <laughs> I, I'm with you. Yeah. It, it, it's a means to an end. Yes. But also like side hustle, I think is is great in that. But to me, it's too entrepreneurial for my mm. taste. So like for me, I'm coming at it from a creativity point of view and how Mm. that kind of can also like productively feed into your day job Mm. but like a huge part of it is also just genuinely like that kind of checking in with yourself and then recalibrating like what you want and what Mm. you need from your life and like what can what can be put in the bin and what what are kind of some of the tiny changes that that you can make and I found that I was being asked to speak um which I'm very grateful for like you know being able to contribute to that conversation like panels and so Mm. on or people will contact me like through email and and I was just like actually I would really like to put something together which means that either I can run these workshops uh which I'm going to open out some of them to the general public Mm -hmm. some of them will be like um workplace related so like mental well-being for example in the workplace is something I feel hugely passionate Mm. about um but also I'm kind of like the third part of it is like a pro bono for um uh, young journalists so like they're like it's going to be like a quarterly like free event for like young journalists who are like I don't really know what to do and mm. also I'd like some advice on how to apply for jobs and what my boundaries should be around what I should say yes and no to and how much I should be charging and I get that a lot yeah, yeah yeah so I get like I think that was that also came out from being emailed a lot about mm. things and I was like I would love to meet everyone for coffee but I just don't have time and also I can kind of like construct it in a way that's actually going to be helpful for Mm. you and you can hear from your peers but um but yeah so I think a a huge part of this for me is like emotional intelligence but also um I don't know like I'm a very very strong advocate 
for just kind of course correcting your life as it's going on versus like, like my biggest fear was like just, you know, being on my deathbed, like old and decrepit and like looking around my life and just being like, whose life is this? Like, Mm. I didn't really choose it. It kind of just like rolled me along with its speed. And so that is something that Mm. that kind of that idea of autopilot is something that I feel really strongly about kind of just jolting yourself out of it. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think that's brilliant. When will they, do you know when they'll be starting? Yeah. Because obviously we'll put the links to this in the show notes. So the name of the workshop, which um, it doesn't quite have the same impact when you say it out loud versus uh, reading it. Okay. But it's FML colon fix my life. Great. (laughs) And they're launching in September. Listeners, you might be hearing we're we're under the flight path, but that seems like it was one of the mega jumbos. Oh, my God. (laughs) Or do you think it was one of Donald Trump's planes? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, we are kind of under the flight path a little bit. There have been a few, but that one did seem like (laughs) (laughs) it's carrying 800 people. Um, Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to be coming. Sorry, yes. I, what time are they? What, what time? They will be launching in September. September. Um, and all of the stuff that I'm kind of pushing out on it is going to be. I'll be putting out a website, but it's all on my Instagram anyway. Okay. So yeah. And your Instagram is at Porna Bell, and Fabulous. that's Porna with two O's. <laughs> like I will poo. be putting. <laughs> I will be putting all the links to your website, your social media, Thank you. everything that we've discussed. I'll be putting the link to the book. I met, I met Porna and within an hour bought it on Kindle, bought her book on Kindle. So I will, so I will, and I highly recommend everyone read it because it is a beautiful, beautifully written book. It's, covers the topics that we've discussed today it's hard going but there's joy in there and there's totally yeah it, it's it's a brilliant mm. book to read um, yeah. and i hope Thank everyone you. else experiences it because it's great we've come to the end of our time together <laughs> but it's good to know that i can just come and <laughs> stalk you at your <laughs> workshops if that's okay why can't we just hang out normally like why does it have to be at the workshops no you're absolutely <laughs> right we'll put a dinner in the diary um <laughs> i promise i won't say that i'll wear your skin as a coat <laughs> Although until you say it, I'll feel like we haven't got the mutual respect. <laughs> right. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and this topic. Um, I'm sure it, listeners may have lots of questions. So I invite you to email the show at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on social where I'm at Emma Guns. And obviously, if you want to speak to Purna Direct, fine. Uh, I will put all the links to her in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listen, before you go, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to get in touch with the show, simply email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or why not slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. It's one of my favourite things to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this episode and you feel like subscribing, then wherever it is that you stream this particular podcast, please do hit that subscribe button. And if it gives you the option to review, I'd be so grateful if you could leave it five stars and maybe even a sentence or two about what you enjoyed. Thank you so, so much for listening. I, um, I'm, my favorite part of the week is when I go through all of your emails and speak to you in the Facebook group, the link to which will be in the show notes. So I can't wait to have you back here again, same time next week for another episode of the show. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 